Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 100 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel, and before we get started with this really special episode, I just wanted to let you know that we would not be here at episode number 100, coming in at over eight years of having these types of conversations without you, our listeners. So thank you for being a part of this journey. For all of us here at No Treble, we've watched this catalog of incredible conversations come to life. I think back to the origins of this show, which took place in a small cafe in New York City during a conversation I was having with Seth Godin and how he introduced me to Corey. And the germ of this idea was born. Corey, Kevin, and every other contributor at No Treble believes deeply in this idea of preserving these untold oral histories of bass players from across the world and across genres. We're going to keep this going. With that, and for the first time, we're actually bringing back our first guest and the only bass player to have made their second appearance on the show to date, the one, the only, Robert Trujillo. You know him from the past 20 years where he has held down the groove for Metallica. Rob is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Maybe you know him from his earlier days in Suicidal Tendencies, Infectious Grooves, or playing with Ozzy Osbourne. He is the true spirit of what it means to be a great bass player. Rob was also behind the documentary about Jacko Pastorius. And for those who don't know, he was responsible in ensuring that the Pastorius family got back the famed bass of doom. And so with that, welcome to episode number 100 and let's get on with the show. So, who are you and what do you do? My name is Roberto Trujillo, better known as Rob Trujillo from the band Metallica. I play bass. One of my favorite bass players in the whole world. You know that. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate that. I feel like the only logical place for you and I to start is to ask about the bass of doom and how it's doing. <laughs> oh, the bass of doom. The bass of doom is awesome. It's funny because... I just took my son to the airport, Ty. He's going to play at Lollapalooza down in Chile with his band. And a contractor, actually, who's helping me with a studio, he was like, can I see the bass of doom? <laughs> I said, yeah. I guess he plays music a little bit or whatever. And then my son came down, and then we're all hanging out with the bass of doom. But no, the bass of doom is like an individual, almost. It's such a powerful it's like person almost. It's like, you know how back in the day, I don't know if you've heard Johnny Pastorius, Jocko's son, say the base of doom was like a family member. And it's there and it's like the cat or something. And it's hanging out and you pick it up and you jam on it or record with it. And then it still kind of hangs out here and there and gets played and gets recorded here and there. And, but it's all good. I've done some recording with it during the pandemic. I did a couple things with it. Felix was in town, Pastorius. He was in town a few months ago recording and I brought it and he played it and he tracked with it. He was kind of on the go, Felix. I think he was in Mexico before for like a month or something and he came through LA and uh, yeah, so it's doing well. 
I just feel like saying to you, Robert, we have a lot of history. We have a lot of history because when you were in Suicidal Tendencies, I had rock magazines and we had done some interviews, Infectious Grooves as well. And then Metallica came along and I dipped out of the industry. But if I go back eight plus years, you were kind enough to be the first guest ever on this podcast because at the time, you have a connection to the Pastorius family, obviously, and Corey from No Travel, but you had just finished the big production of Jacko's documentary, we were talking a lot about the base of doom and your passion for all things Jacko. And here we sit eight plus years later. It's a base that you take out on the road with you, or is it only for special occasions? It's funny because Kirk, he plays a guitar called Greeny, and Greeny is with him on all the flights, everything. Greeny's like his child. So Greeny's always with him. I don't do that. <laughs> the bases that I take on the road with me are bases that if something happens, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I call them my hotel bases. It's like I need them, and it's usually two. I usually bring a four and a five. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of songs that we do with Metallica, new and old, that are actually played on a five. And if it's a track that we don't usually play live and I need to dive in, I got to have the five handy or if I'm reviewing certain songs. So I always have the two instruments. I can't imagine bringing something like the bass of doom out on the road and risking anything like that. That's just not going to happen. It's a new thing though, Robert, isn't it? Like this idea that you have player instruments and you have these instruments that have just by the nature of music have become these insane collectibles. What you have in particular, Jacko's Bass of Doom is very unique, but you go back to early 70s basses and many players won't take those out on the road. They become too valuable. It's amazing how these instruments have taken on art-like quality. Well, I'm not a collector per se. The Base of Doom didn't come to me as a collectible item. I think most people know by now because it's been so many years, but there was a situation and a legal dispute. And I was fortunate in that myself and the family were able to get this special instrument back and get it into the circle, so to speak. But you're right. Instruments these days, and maybe it's always been that way. They've become like art collectibles, very important, but also certain instruments. I mean, it's crazy what they're worth so much money and all that kind of stuff. For me, I want to make sure that these types of instruments are just safe because nowadays, think about it, airports. My son, he went to Europe. He didn't have his base for the whole tour cycle because it got misplaced in the transition at the baggage claim at the airport, whatever. And literally for three weeks, he did not have his main base that he plays because it was following him all around Europe. And then <laughs> we got it a week after he got home. So a month later, and he was lucky because nine times out of 10, he maybe doesn't get that instrument back. And it's just too risky. So the bases that I take are good instruments, but it's not the end of the world. Main bass that I use for the Metallica albums doesn't leave the studio. It doesn't leave the studio. The sound that you hear on 72 Seasons and Hardwired, that instrument, it's mine, but I'm not allowed to take it out of the studio. I don't take it home. I don't take it to LA. I don't take it. It lives there and it stays there. And that's just how it is. It's an instrument that resonates, like literally... And this is coming from a recording team that's not super excited about active electronic basses and five strings for that matter. These are traditional Fender tribesmen. 
And this bass just wins. I don't know. It's like sitting between the two guitars, James and Kirk, and how it sits in the mix. It resonates. You hit a note, and it's like that scene from Spinal Tap. Did you hear it? It resonates through the walls. It's crazy. We don't know what it is. Every instrument's different. The wood, the electronics could be right down to something as crazy as how the wood had aged and the, the journey that it took. I don't know. But that thing is a monster. It is a monster. <laughs> Going through an old vintage Ampeg, it just has that personality for these songs. And it may not be the right bass for another album or project or band, but for some reason it has the consistency and, again, the personality that fits the Metallica music perfectly. So it doesn't leave the studio. You mentioned your son, Ty. How old is He's he He's 18 now? now. They grow oh quick. My God. Yeah, mine too. I remember, it feels like yesterday, that he did this corn gig down south. And I know you went down, I saw some video, and he was playing this really cool two-string bass, like really insane. He's in this band, Auto mm-hmm. Now. I'm really curious what it's like to have a kid go into the family business. I never forced him into music. He just gravitated towards bass. But originally, he was really into drums, actually. He started playing drums when he was super young. About age eight, I think it was, he asked me to teach him something on the bass. So I showed him a C major scale. And he got that in a day. And then I showed him a minor scale. And then Two years later, I had learned the intro to punk jazz, and I was crazy. My daughter was talking about it the other day. She's going, oh, my God, you used to play that all the time, all the time, all the time. And so he was 11 years old. He started to learn it. So I started to teach it to him. And then one day he comes down with a fretless bass, and he's like, look, Poppy, check it out. And he starts playing punk jazz on a fretless. And I didn't even know he knew what a fretless was. And it was just, it was crazy. So when he puts his mind to anything, whether it's corn songs or Jocko solos, he can make it happen. But I have an interesting sidebar story before we get into too deep into other things. So I had obviously learned the intro to punk jazz and even jammed it with Felix, Peter Erskine and everybody. And then when I went live to play it, I forgot it. It was the craziest. I've never had this. I've had it happen a couple of times. I'm not going to lie, but happened in suicidal one time. <laughs> I saw your mommy, the intro, which is the easiest thing in the whole world. And we had two weeks off and I guess I hadn't, it just slipped my mind. But I actually, at that moment in front of 18,000 people, it slipped and I just had to sort of improvise and I ended up doing something completely different. I was so mad. I remember Felix was with me and I almost became emotional. I almost threw my bass into the wall and everything. No, 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 don't do that. So we played the song punk jazz and it was great. And the song itself, and we played it together and that was awesome. But I was so probably in my career, that was probably for me, just for myself, because I'm my harshest critic. That was where I was like, just so disappointed. And I didn't know why that happened. So now here we go. I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, Kamasi Washington covered a Metallica song, My Friend of Misery, yeah, which is really cool and fairly complex in comparison to the original version, completely different. So I learned it inside and out. And here I am on the same stage at the Hollywood Bowl. And I was like, okay, 
we got this. It's a 13-piece band now. And I got Kirk over here, and I'm the one who knows it the best, so I'm holding the flag <laughs> for this particular composition, I realize. And then Tomasi says, oh, play the intro to My Friend in Misery, which is almost like a finger-picking intro that Jason sure. used to play. And I know it. So here I am again, playing an intro to something in front of, again, 18,000 people. <laughs> and I pulled it off. I pulled it off, but I can't lie and tell you that my leg wasn't shaking and I wasn't reliving the had happened eight years prior or whatever. The butterflies hit. And I don't know. I think when you're in a venue like that, the history of the Hollywood Bowl, all of that just consume you and freak you out if you let it. So I held on and I made it. And once I got to the intro of the actual Kamasi version of the song, I think it's the same thing when I go surfing and I'm at an intimidating surf break and the waves are pumping and it's Hawaii or something. I'm like, oh man, the waves coming to me or something. I'm like, uh, you know, you don't want to fall. And sometimes it just takes that first drop and then you get your composure and you make it and you ride the wave. And then from then on, you're fine. Maybe even it takes the yeah. beating, like eating it, like actually experiencing the fall and the wipeout, so to speak. And then you're fine. So I've learned a lot <laughs> in the last few years, even in my older years. I'm constantly learning and growing and you know, just trying to be the best that I can be. Ups and downs, ebbs and flows. If Billy Joel talks about the song, We Didn't Start the Fire, he's like, if I can get the first two words, I'm good. He goes, if I can't, I'm just looking for someone in the audience who knows Well, it, it snowballs. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. I had moments where I've had to play a bass solo and I'm just not in it. I'm like too much in my head. And then there's other times where I'm just flying. You never really know until you talk to people who you respect and you find out like, yeah, guess what? Getty Lee goes through the same thing and... It's just not just us or me or whatever. I do professional speaking, 40 to 60 keynotes a year about business. And there are some days where you get on stage and everything is flowing. There's some days where you can't find the words. There's some days where the butterflies and energy are really high. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Every room is different. That's what makes a live show so incredible. It's that it's not the musicians on stage. It's not the production. It's not the audience. It's not the city. It's what happens in that moment. There's something weird in our biochemistry of how a moment just becomes something. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be repeatable, but it never is. You're right. It's just the way it is. Sometimes you're riding the magic carpet and why? I don't know. And then other times it's just, oh man, it could be stuff that happened earlier in the day or the pressure of whatever. And it takes you out of your game at that moment. You see it with athletes all the time. There's a guy, you know, he's in basketball and he's just hitting everything. And all of a sudden they have a bad game. They may still score 20 points, but oh, they didn't score 40 points. When you did the gig with Kamasi, was Miles Mosley there oh, too? Yeah. Or was he with your band? Okay, so it was his band. No. And Miles is a beast. He was just on the show. We hung out in well, Montreal. No. Their show it was a 13 piece band. So we had it's a crazy we had band. Miles, we had Thundercat, myself, and oh, we had three backup singers and two percussionists, two keyboard players. It was huge. And I'm not kidding. I knew this song inside and out, and I was very confident in this one. But when he threw the curveball at me and said, so you should play the intro to the actual Metallica version. And again, I know it. Of course I do. it. We just played it a few times. It's a great song. I love it. 
maybe I hadn't played it in a little while. So all of a sudden it got in my head for a second. And it's like, okay, I figured it out in a few minutes, like reconnected with it. But now I'm going to play it in front of 20,000 people. Okay. And it's at the venue where I took on an intro before and fell on my ass. So I'm like, okay, let's do this. I start playing it. I'm completely by myself and it was cool. But I'm not going to lie and say that internally, my leg always shakes on its own and I could feel that happening. I could feel the leg going. And it's almost like when you have the devil and the angel on your shoulders yeah. and the devil sitting there going, ooh, I think I'm going to mess with you. And mine isn't a leg shake. Mine is this weird twitch right under my rib cage, but it's similar. It's yeah. the same thing. And I know that that's just the energy of the yeah. moment. I'm curious because one of the coolest things I love about Metallica is you release a lot of video content in particular for me, at least the YouTube channel is amazing. And what you see in the YouTube channel very often when the band is on tour is the jam room playing behind the scenes. I don't know if these are edited or unedited, but there's a lot. You just see the band is really passionate about making sure that when you go on stage, the engine of the band is well oiled and tuned and ready to go. Some artists do a quick sound check. Some don't even. They'll futz around on their instruments in the back room, not even plugged in, get up on stage and do what they do. There is something that always inspires me about this high level of professionalism that the band brings to it. And I see it in the intensity of you playing and how you even sit in that room. Is that part of what you're talking about too? So when you get up on stage that at least you are in that quote unquote athletic zone who started that? Has it always been a part of the band? Because I find it such an inspiring workhorse type of spirit. Yes. It's, it's always been a part of the band as, as long as I can remember. Because back in 1993, Suicidal Tendencies, we were opening for Metallica on the Black Album Tour. And I remember right. them yeah. jamming and warming up. I could hear them. And though I didn't go in the room and actually physically experience it with them but i knew that they had a setup and then that kind of maybe has had escalated to where when i joined the band we brought in pro tools setup recording setup and the reason for that is because james specifically he's tuning a guitar he's adjusting a tone control on his amp setup or whatever he could write the best riff in the world and you got to catch it and he's not one to write the riff and then all of a sudden he's like hey let's document this Sometimes he's maybe not in the mood or he's just not focused on that. So it's important to always have some sort of recording device to document that stuff. As most Metallica fans know, a lot of the ideas that ultimately become great Metallica songs happen or are jammed on for the first time or created in the tuning room. But a lot of that stuff, especially with James, happens in the tuning room. So how long is typically that tuning room session? Is it hours? It feels like you're really in there for hours when I get the vibe of it. So it depends. I go in and I'll go in for a couple hours. I get there early in the day. I like to play to jam with the songs. Maybe we're playing some deep cuts that night or just feeling like trying some different instruments or whatever, because I've got a selection of basses there ranging from fenders I'm, I'm talking about like mustang bass to like nash p basses and jazz basses and everything so it, it's a lot of fun you've got your pedal board in there and you can just get lost in your own jam space and then 
sometimes there's vocal responsibility and maybe it's a song that we haven't played in a while. So I like to go in there with the mics and everything and make sure that I'm doing the best I can for the vocal as well. You know, maybe a song that you're going to play in a week or something. You're not playing it that night, but Kirk and I were doing these duets on the last European run about three years ago. We would learn a song from that country. So say we're in France. We covered a Johnny Holiday song in Stade de France sure. called Qua Magal. And that's a lot of work because you're coming up with an arrangement that has to be around two and a half minutes. You're singing phonetically. Sometimes the style of music is different. There's a lot of variables. So Kirk and I would be practicing in there, warming up before we get on stage and sometimes be in there for a while because we want to do the best we can. And this is stuff that we would have been preparing for a couple months. This stuff, it's not like you learned it two days ago. So there's this overlap. We would spend a lot of time in the tuning room for stuff like that too. So the tuning room is a safe haven for creativity. And it's like the gym for an athlete to just get warmed up and relax and find your space. Most of the crew doesn't go in there. It's just a select three people that hang out there and work with you. There's not a bunch of traffic in there, but it definitely it's helpful because we're going into a two hour show. It's a lot of music and it's nice to just be able to escape. And it's a big responsibility. And I love the fact that the band doesn't diminish that. That in fact, I would argue you amplify it, that you create the energy and pressure because there's an expectation. People are coming in from all over the world. These are big stages, big productions. I love the fact that when you go out there, you've essentially played a show and a half before you even go out there. It's amazing. Yeah. It's never like just show up and walk on stage. I dream of that sometimes. I'm like, man, I wish we could just roll up and just, you know, because sometimes you get there, it's like three o'clock and your show's not till nine or something, but you're like ready. Like, I want to play now. It's like, there's nobody, it's the same there's nobody in the audience. <laughs> Listen, I'll show up to a morning keynote, you do your AV check, you set up your laptop, you check your slides. And I just tell them, can we just start? Like, there's no one here yet. I'm like, just yeah. get them in. Let's go. Because <laughs> you're ready yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So February, 2003, you get this call, an incredible life-changing call. And it's documented in the Some Kind of Monster documentary. For those who haven't seen it, you join the band. And here we sit, you and I chatting 20 years later. 2009, band gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you go in along with them, which is incredible also. Tell me a little bit, Rob, about what Metallica means for you 20 years later. Has the music changed? Have you changed? What does it mean to you? Well, Metallica is a family. I inherited a family. I inherited new brothers. As most people know, or I hope they know, when you join a band, especially a band like this, you have a responsibility in most bands. I think it's, it's common knowledge. It's one thing to be able to play. Of course, you got to play. You got to play your instrument. They got to have confidence in you and you've got to perform. So there's all that. But at the same time, as a family member, you've got to be able to cater to the personalities and everybody in Metallica is very, very different. We are definitely not the same. So there's a lot of communication involved in how we work things out and resolve certain things. And sometimes you find yourself just like you would with your brother, completely pissed off. And you have to navigate the terrain of the personalities like I would do with my own family. And at the same time, what's really important is support. You know, you got to know when one of your brothers is down and how to 
help them. So there's all of that that goes into what it is to be in a band like Metallica. And then together, it's one thing how we play individually or how we write with other people or like myself coming into it later in the game and having been a writer in my other situations, being a main writer and all of a sudden joining Metallica and not being a main writer, but understanding that, okay, I'm here to support as a bass player. I'm here to support James's idea, or now it's time to create, it's time to write, to be able to understand how to wear that hat, because it's not about the ego. It's about how you serve the team and even beyond just the music and the personalities and how you work with each other. There's also the responsibility to the amount of press and the travel involved in that alone. And obviously touring, it can be challenging to be on the road all the time away from your family. And for me back then, I didn't have my kids yet. I went from living in Southern California to within a phone call, I was in the Bay area for the next year. And you know, literally it was just like that. I got a call from Lars. I was having dinner with Chloe and he says, oh, you know, we're going to have a photo shoot tomorrow and you should probably be here for it. Right. You are in the band now. And I was like, oh yeah, uh, yeah. And then, you know, he goes, so there's a flight leaving at eight o'clock tonight and it's five o'clock. I'm having dinner. Can you get on that flight? <laughs> it would have been nice to have got the call the day before, or I'm having dinner, Chloe. And all of a sudden it's like, all right, gotta go. That's how it is. I joined the band. My first gig was at San Quentin State Penitentiary. I didn't know the lay of the land on stage. I kept getting in the way because I go to a mic to sing a backup or something. And all of a sudden James was bulldozing me out of the way because he's constantly changing mics. I didn't know that. So there's this kind of natural flow I'm learning the hard way. No one's mad at each other. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, yeah. hey, you suck. You're in the way. I'm just learning the lay of the land because nobody told me. And it's trial by fire. And of course, I'm at San Quentin. That's already enough to rattle your brain. And luckily, they loved us. <laughs> they they, they, even love, they, they, they <laughs> even love suicidal tendencies, man. They were like, God, I'm suicidal. <laughs> Thank God. It's a lot of everything. Being in Metallica and also growing as a unit creatively has been incredible because I really believe this. I feel that we've challenged ourselves over the years. We made an album with Lou Reed. Obviously, SNM 2 was really special and just creative journeys that this band takes. And then you grow from all of this and get better. When I first joined the band, I remember playing Sad But True back in 2003 with these guys. And I was like, man, it's fast. This is weird. It's faster than the record. And then all the fast songs were fast. So I had to learn how to like readjust my technique start playing with three fingers on the gallop because I couldn't keep up with two. My son can keep up with two. I can't. I'm like <laughs> cramping up. You learn and you grow with the responsibility to the music. And so I was going through all that, but at the same time, I was learning this insane back catalog, not knowing what we were going to actually play. So it was always a challenge and I didn't get caught up till like year two. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to learn songs that they don't even play. So I'm going to learn Orion. I'm going to learn Call of Cthulhu. I'm going to learn Freight Ends of Sanity because they've never played that. And I'm going to learn that song. And I did, but it took me a couple years to get to that place where I was actually caught up. And that was my goal to get caught up because I was chasing this thing 
when I joined the band, I was chasing just being in the band, the workload, the amount of songs that I had to learn. And I didn't know what we were going to play half the time back then. Just feels better now, 20 years into this, where it's like, okay, I know the terrain. I know where I'm at with the catalog. I'm in a great place with all that stuff. And I feel comfortable and confident. So now they actually even look to me for answers with some of the songs that they wrote. (laughs) Wait, how does it go? And I like being that guy. I like that they can depend on me, but it took a while to get there. I can go on and I got stories, man. This is why we hang out. I love your stories. Your time is your time in Metallica. My time with Metallica goes back really, really early days. I was a rock writer and covering them when they were starting out. I think about the style of Cliff Burton a lot. I think about how the Black Album really established Jason Newstead as a sound. I think about when you joined the band. And my time with the band at that point felt like I wasn't so sure how much new music was coming out. They weren't in that album tour, album tour cycle. There was a lot of playing live and a lot of massive venues, but new music. At that point, I think, again, my maybe my time frame is off and you can correct me, Rob. It just felt that there wasn't a lot. And then Death Magnetic, Lulu, Hardwired, now 72 seasons. It feels to me like there is now in this 20 years of you being a part of it, this new bass sound that at the beginning I was wondering, well, is this a band that's just going to play a lot live and not really record new music? Do you feel that that body of recorded work How do you feel about it from a bass perspective? Well, proud and excited about the fact that I could be a part of this band and you can actually hear my instrument and you can feel the groove and the pulse that is very important to what we do now. Having Greg Fiddleman as our producer and that recording team, they love the bass. They love the drums. They love the rhythm section. So that being an important ingredient in these songs, like on 72 seasons, and even before that is awesome for me. It's not like the bass is an afterthought so much. There's a lot of cool bass on this album. There's some really cool stuff going on here. This is a collaborative album. I uh, seriously believe that the last album was cool. Obviously it had its thing and everybody loved it, but I'll just be honest, less collaborative on the creative side in terms of the writing as this one, this one everybody really did step up and contribute. And I feel like with the pandemic and being forced into this certain existence and not being able to create in person for a while, you just take every note when you get in that room together and it's coming from the heart, it's passion driven. And that's what this album sounds and feels like to me. Everything about it just resonates this cohesive kind of magic that I feel is one of the secret ingredients in this body of music. It's a special album for that reason. It sounds like you're saying 72 Seasons is more a raw bass album for you in terms of the Metallica catalog than yeah. other albums. That's amazing to hear. I feel that. I do. I feel that. And the scary thing about, someone asked me the other day about ideas and riffs and contributing to the songwriting machine. And I said, the scary thing about this is that, you know, is that difficult? And I was like, no, because there is actually so much music in riffs and ideas. Some stuff doesn't even get listened to. I had about 10 to 12 riffs and bass lines that never even got listened to because we already had enough. 
what I'm saying is there's no shortage of ideas, even for the future. I feel like there's just this endless supply of really great ideas. It's almost overwhelming. And that's why I think sometimes you hear a Metallica song and you go, oh my God, how many cool riffs are in there? There's like five. Well, that's because we have a lot. And that's a good problem to have. At the end of the day, it's a good, fun problem. In terms of the groove element is a priority now in this band. It just has that flow. And it's also can be very cinematic too. I always say this album feels like you're driving down PCH, Pacific Coast Highway in the convertible and the sunshine and you just, or maybe the opposite. Maybe it's raining and you're in a storm and you're like, you're totally right, Rob. I was yeah. actually in Ojai the other week speaking and my driver took me from Ojai back to LAX all through Malibu, all along the Pacific Coast. And when I was listening to the new album, my thought was, I wish I had that pounding in my ears. On You're exactly right. It would have been perfect for that road trip. I'm also curious too. I mean, look, this album gets announced, 72 seasons, and everyone freaks out. Oh my God, there's a new Metallica album. Sung drops. Album is going to drop any moment now. It's Good to see from a fan perspective, because it does feel a little bit more like we're getting new music tour, new music tour. You were teasing at it a little bit. Is that what we're going to see? Are we going to see more albums and not have this hesitation of, are they recording? Are they not recording? Because it does feel like that was a time frame for us with Metallica. Is there this idea now we're going to keep recording new music? Because that's a great thing to hear. If it's up to me, <laughs> I'd be in the studio next week recording the next record. We're all different and we have different things going on in our lives. So that's a complicated question. Good news is, is when we come together and we're focused, great things do happen. Challenging to get everybody on the same schedule in the same place and in that headspace to create when we really need to, just because it's hard to wrangle everybody up. Like I said, there's a lot of things going on in everybody's lives. But I will push for that. For this record, it's interesting because, so let's talk about this. So James surprised us in the first year of the pandemic with Black in 2020, which was an acoustic rendition of the song. And he just basically said, hey, I'm going to send you this idea. Check it out. See if you like it. He didn't even tell us what it was. And then it's blackened, but it's done acoustically and it's completely different than the electric version. If you guys want to jump on and play to this, let's see what happens. If you don't like it, all right, we won't do it. So we all heard it, of course, in our homes. Home studios needed to be reignited, the whole thing. My home studio was in storage for so many years. I got that puppy going again, and we started to contribute to this idea he had. And then our producer engineer obviously got involved, and now we're trying this new technology to see how we can actually make a recording this way. And that took a long time, but that really did kick everything off. That kind of ignited the flame. And we had talked a little bit and there was the idea that we do another acoustic version of a song. And I think I suggested day that never comes. And so I was the one responsible to write a acoustic version of this, but in that process, I started seeing and hearing actually people hitting me up too. Hey, Robert, will you play on this cover song? Or will you want to collaborate on this acoustic song? Or will you play bass on this? And we'll have four screens and we'll be, jam you know, that started to happen like crazy kind of after what we did. We were probably sort of helpful in kicking that off, especially yeah. within our peers and everything. I sent Lars 
a completely different thing. I didn't send them day that never comes. I sent him like a riff and a transition that had nothing to do with that song. And he was confused and he was kind of saying, uh, so you, this music you sent that is that day that never comes. Number one, it's not acoustic. And I said, no, no, man, they want to send it to you. I sent you this because I think we should start writing new original stuff. Let's go that way. Let's go a different direction. And he was like, I don't know. I mean, isn't it good that we just at least send them something? I said, I think we should start working on new music. And he had called back later. He was like, let's do that. So then of course, everything kicked in the gear and the creative process started. But I want to say that James initiating that was huge by sending us the blackened acoustic version that he came up with and surprising us because we didn't know what it was. And that let us know, hey, we can actually be creative from home together. And then once we actually got in a room together for the first time, we had already been familiar with the riffs and some of the arrangements. It was such a great experience to be together and play is a gift. And you realize that when you have been forced to not be together. So that was a really great moment for us as a band to connect. But I started to collaborate with people also. That was another good thing. I was able to work with other musicians, friends of mine that were maybe in New York or in Hiromi in Japan. I got to work with Ozzy again. That was cool because that was actually in LA. So I could physically right. be there in that little bubble with Taylor Hawkins and Chad Smith and Andrew Watt and Ozzy. A lot of good things happened from those two years. For my family, we're very creative. So all of us just dove into our music and didn't turn it into like, oh, you know, it's the uncertainty. It's the end of the world. No, man, we're going to be creative. We're going to get through this. It's an incredible time that I think we'll reflect on in these wild ways. One of the things that happened, though, and it's very relevant to Camp Metallica, is touring comes back and there's this pent-up demand that people want to see shows. What's happening with 72 seasons is almost unbelievable. And if I could go back in time and tell 14-year-old Mitch that this band that nobody knows of and that for me listening to probably would get me beat up in high school is now playing two sold-out nights at the stadium over a weekend with two completely different sets, it would be like telling me, I think when I was a kid, that there'd be a live action Doctor Strange movie, which would be just as absurd to me. And yet here we are with both of those things actually happening. Talk a little bit about how you prepare. We talked about the work ethic of the band as well. No, this is an unbelievable monumental task that's going to happen very soon for you, which is two nights, stadiums sold out, two completely different sets. Talk me through what you do to prepare for that. I can imagine what an athlete does to prepare for a big game, but this is big game week after week, and you got to be there both nights. That's a big challenge. Yeah. On the physical side of things, at a certain point along the way, probably pretty much when I first joined the band. So I'm up there playing with these guys. Again, two-hour shows. I never did two-hour shows. It was always an hour 30, maybe, tops. My legs... I had a developed tendonitis in my knees. I realized that I had to start really figuring out the right way to train. It wasn't going to be about weights and more gym, being in an enclosed environment in the gym. I had to take this outside. So I started working out on the football fields and the soccer fields and doing drills and more body weight, a lot of movement. So already physically, back then I had to do yoga to stretch because I was doing everything wrong for this type of touring. 
in this type of a show because there's so much movement and you're covering a lot of area on that stage it can be very physical. And then at the same time, the playing and the facility, and it's funny because sometimes people don't understand that you try to play a super fast gallop that certain techniques and stuff that are involved with this kind of music, it can get pretty physical. And I know a lot of incredible players, but then when they try to play some of this stuff, they're like, oh man, you know, <laughs> I'm like, wait. So just like anything, different styles are different styles. This is a style too. Rock music isn't always just straight ahead. A song like Sandman, that riff is really cool, but that is a very different riff than say a song like My Apocalypse, for instance, off the Death Magnetic album. There's a lot of twists and turns and it's still got a groove, but it's fast and you're galloping certain ways, a song like Battery. When I auditioned for Metallica, they were excited because I could play Battery. Some of the other bass players didn't want to take that on. Without and a I pick. Play, <laughs> yeah, without a pick. And I originally, I felt comfortable with that one because I had jammed that with Dave Lombardo. Slayer. Yeah, yeah Slayer. Those are little challenges within the style in itself that you take on stage for two hours with all this movement and energy and focus to the audience as well. So there's a lot of demand in that. But I remember when I first came on board, there was uncertainty as to how is Metallica going to do from 2003 onward. It's like, hey, yeah. felt like we had less fans. It felt like compared to that momentum of the Black Album, it just felt like things were kind of more... I don't know, even feeling. Yeah, could have gone that direction. And just somehow, some way, we got through those couple of years and Death Magnetic, things started to shift and there was a resurgence developing. And then with Hardwired, it really did start to escalate. And we noticed that, especially in Europe and in the States too, on the stadium shows, but Europe, all those shows were sold out. Were soccer stadiums it was crazy. crazy. So, you just never know how it's going to play out. It kind of does what it's going to do. But I think at the end of the day, a band has to deliver what's coming from their heart and always do the best that you can do. And one of the things I could say about this band is we really do dive in. And that's why it also takes a long time to make a Metallica record because there's cultivation. It's not like you're just going in and slamming it out, which is fine. And that can happen. I've been in those situations and it's very cool. I love that. But I also understand with this band and these musicians, you've got to nurture an idea most of the time, not all the time, but. I have a non sequitur question that I'm so curious about because I was reading a bit about you and I came across this piece of information that I had not heard before. It said that you were very influenced at a young age when you saw this band Rubicon play. Is that true or false? So yeah, the first bass solo that I actually saw was Rubicon, Jack Blades. So this and, is the uh, thing. It was Jack Blades was, from Night Ranger and Damn Yankees. And when I read that, my brain just did a whole contortion going, that's such a strange connection, well, isn't it? Yeah. So what it was is it was just that moment where, oh, this is the instrument that resonates with me. Huge. Because oh, I always loved I always loved the bass. I didn't know exactly what a bass was, like physically, but I understood it when I heard it. I could feel it because I grew up with my mom listening to Motown, dancing in her hot pants and 
or Elk Platform Shoes, you know, James Brown, Marvin okay. Gaye, what, yeah. what's going on was one of my all-time favorite records as a child. I used to like play air saxophone or <laughs> right. keyboards or whatever. I was just really moved by that album. And as time went on, I realized that it was really the bass actually that was moving James Jamerson and his lines and his voice. And then of course, after what you're saying, the Rubicon experience, I discovered fusion very soon after. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. You've got Stanley Clark and you've got Jocko. And I already knew that I loved Black Sabbath. I grew up with Sabbath and the bass is crushing on all the Sabbath stuff. So I already knew about that. And also, yes, but all of a sudden I started hearing this Jeff Berlin and all these guys. And I was like, wait a minute. Changes your life. Yeah. So it was all just coming at me at a young age. And then, of course, being able to see Jocko in 1980 and around that time, Playboy Jazz Festival and highlight moment of my life was actually at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium seeing him play. And the reason that was important is because now I'm seeing a bass player not just have this unique voice on the instrument in a way that say Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen or a guitar player would. He's also this animated personality on stage and he's rocking out. It's like you have baby powder on stage. He's sliding into home plate onto his instrument. And it was just this whole other thing going on, which was very inspiring. And then he looked like a surfer from Venice. <laughs> so I was just like right here in my neighborhood where I grew up and I'm watching this dude this Jocko guy who was a mystery because I'd see photos of him and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. He looks weird. He looks like me. All that stuff. It was just an exciting time. I was really lucky because I got to see Anthony Jackson do his thing without Demiola. I got to see Chris Squires with Yes. I got to see Earth, Wind & Fire in 1977. I got to see, most people know that my first concert was the Isley Brothers Go For Your Guns tour with Wild Cherry opening, play the funky music, White Boy, all that stuff. That's good for you as a young musician. And that's really good for you as a bass player. And then, of course, when I joined Suicidal Tendencies, I got thrown into that whole world with Slayer. And I already knew about Motorhead, but then all of a sudden it's like, oh, shoot, Slayer. Whoa, <laughs> that's serious. It's been a hundred episodes of this show and you have different conversations with all different types of players. And you really see how the genetic lottery plays itself out in terms of you just happened to be born in this part of the world, this moment in time where I never got to see Jacko. And because there's a five or six year gap in age between us, you did. It's like a wild yeah. thing to me and how that creates influence. And what I hear you also saying, which is really interesting, is what you really saw with Jacko was somebody take an instrument that was typically connecting two other instruments and turn it into something other. And because of that, I think there was a lot of other connective tissues and people like Chris Squire and James Jamerson, as different as they were, similarly bringing the instrument into a different spot in the music. And yeah. I would make the argument that with 20 years of Metallica now both recorded and live, I feel that with the way you play in that group as well. Like I just see the instrument sounding differently for this band in a really positive way. We got to tip our hat to Getty Lee Ugh. and what he brought. I was trying to play Livia Strangiato and YYZ at Backyard Parties Same. when I was 16. That was a highlight moment for me, trying to learn it by ear. It's tough. Of course, we always have to 
realize and celebrate Cliff Burton. And I mean, wow, to take the genre of music and then to say, hey, man, nah, this bass is going to have a voice. It's going to speak in this genre where maybe it's not so much allowed to speak. Like I said, Getty's doing that. Steve Harris, Cliff was saying, I'm doing this. And you would imagine he's pulling from Stanley Clark. Yeah. I'm pulling from Stanley Clark too. You start to pull from your heroes and bring that to the recipe. And he's bringing that recipe to Metallica. That was huge. That was a statement right there. So I take it all in, especially during that Jocko filmmaking period. It was kind of crazy because I remember people coming up to me and being a little weird, maybe because they didn't know me or understand where I came from. So there was this whole elitist kind of bass, jazz, bass, elitist energy sometimes, not, not all the time, but sometimes from younger people. And I was like, this is really weird because I felt like I was being flexed on and I didn't even realize it because I'm maybe a little older and I know how I came up and I know for a long time, I only loved progressive music and fusion, you know, and <laughs> I went through that phase. I went to jazz school, Dick Grove School of Music. But then, of course, I ended up playing in suicidal tendencies and then infectious grooves and all that. So I know my history, but a lot of other people did it. And maybe they didn't want to believe that I knew about Jocko and that I even knew his family or anything. So it was a strange time for me dealing with some of that stuff. Then when I be around people like Wayne Shorter, rest in peace, Wayne, yeah. Peter Erskine, and these guys were so excited to hang with me and meet me. And Joni Mitchell became really a great friend. All of the elders were so, so wonderful. And they were so excited. Bobby Thomas still texts me every once in a while, and he's just so appreciative. And so these are like my new friends. And then the younger people were kind of weird. So it's like, how is that that the actual, the gods of music? I call them that. The elders, they were so respectful and proud and happy and appreciative. Because at that point when I was making the film, it wasn't about me necessarily being the bass player of Metallica per se, or it was about me trying to share this man's life story with the world and because it's important. I had discovered and realized that it wasn't just the jazz community that was embracing Jocko. No, please love in Jocko. All these players, whether they're gospel players or whether they're punk rockers or heavy metal players, the range is broad. And they're like, oh no, my favorite bass player is Jocko. And I realized that it was just so vast and the fan base was so wide and then the story was important to everybody, even people that don't know what a base is, they still love the story. And that's what it meant for me. And that's why I think I was chosen to be the one. I used to look online to see if there was, I knew about the book. I, I read the book, Bill Mikowski's book, and, yeah. and I read the second one, but I, there was nothing on film being made. And I was good friends with Johnny. Pastorius from back when I was in suicidal tendencies, I had met him and he said they were working on a project, a documentary. And then three years later, there was nothing happening. And so then they asked me to join the team, so to speak. And I did. And the rest is history. But I just want to say that it's going to be 10 yep. years. So there's an anniversary coming up for that. Yeah. I feel so much better about everything and how that exceeded what I could have ever imagined from my filmmaking team, you know, my director, Paul Marchand, and 
and the warriors that were involved, my DP, Roger, DG Akomi, all these guys were in the trenches with me because for it took six years to do that. Yeah. Six years, you know, and sometimes I felt alone, like literally I am alone with this project. There's nobody around. The family disappeared on me for, <laughs> I don't know why, but <laughs> you know, they got families and they can't be around every second, but I'm like, I just couldn't stop and walk away and I had to be strong. So you learn in life and you grow and whether it's a film or whether it's a band and people, personalities, how to stay creative in this world, curveballs and everything. I love the bass again. I love funk music. I love cameo, bro. I love cameo. I was like probably my favorite band, Ohio players and cameo. Just like, oh my God, I love, I love music. I'll amplify your thought in a smaller way, which is eight plus years doing a hundred episodes of these podcasts every month, having a conversation. It's amazing to me to see how connected this community is. And just by virtue of you being in the biggest rock band in the world and agreeing to show up here and be part of this conversation for this hundredth episode, you're the first time in the history of the podcast where we've had a player on twice, Corey, myself, and Kevin, who were like, we got to speak to Rob to make this happen. And it's just perfect that it falls at this moment of 72 seasons. It just speaks to the community. And I think that whatever you thought was going on when you were getting ready for that documentary on Jacko, I think that wish really has come true because I see this community so strong, Rob. It's amazing to see. And I think you probably played a part in breaking down those boundaries and just making sure the players of this instrument of the low end have a passion for it. And I just can't thank you enough for giving us the time and the creativity. And I think that if it is going to be a 10th year anniversary for this Jacko, we should do something for new record day for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it all comes from the heart. I remember playing five string bass with suicidal tendencies and some of the purists were just like, what, what? That does, there's yeah, no way sure. that's impossible. I even freaked Ozzy out. Cause when I auditioned, <laughs> I auditioned with a five and I just, it's a bass. I don't know. Four strings, five strings, two strings. Whatever yeah. sounds good. Yeah. And he was like, initially, yeah, he, he had a hard time. <laughs> it's just a string. And now I play four more than ever. You know what I mean? It, I prefer four strings. So much work, five, but sometimes you need that. I mean, I don't know. I, I just, yeah. And now I think there's a lot of players that actually play uh, with the, the yeah, low B sure. and stuff. So things happen. People grow, get through it. Well, we're all super psyched for 72 seasons. We're super psyched to be able to spend the summer with you. So, Rob, yeah. thanks so much for the time, Thank, man. We yeah. appreciate it so much. Thank you. Uh, we, Metallica, are very excited to take this thing out on the road, this beast, and share this amazing music because we're very proud of it. We are, very much so. And I think, and we believe, it's going to resonate live. The songs have that vibe. So, get ready. <laughs> um.